When we really look at the historical evidence, we see both grammar translation style approaches and communicative approaches occurring all the way back. And I think if we stop trying to, to divide ourselves into these theoretical camps and instead start talking about what's working in our classrooms, we really all benefit because we can take the best of all of these approaches and put them together into something great that works for us and our students. You're listening to Speaking of Language, a podcast recorded at the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. Each week, we explore a topic related to language pedagogy and second language acquisition. This week on Speaking of Language. Alan Vandenarend discusses how we can rethink approaches to translation and pedagogy to better connect with students. Welcome to a new episode of Speaking of Language. I'm Angelica Kramer, the director of the Language Resource Center at Cornell University. And I'm Sam Lupowitz, the LRC's media manager. Today, we welcome Alan Vandenarend to the studio. Dr. Vandenarend is an active learning initiative postdoctoral associate here at Cornell and is working with classics faculty and graduate students on redesigning courses in translation to make them more engaging and effective. Welcome to Speaking of Language, Alan. Thanks. It's great to be here. Uh, You are a learner of different languages and a former public school teacher. What prompted your interest in languages and what did your educational journey look like? That's a really great question. Uh, So my first experience with the language other than English was actually at a very young age. Mm -hmm. I I grew up just outside of Washington, D.C., and the local public schools let us uh, attend elementary school half of the day in one language and half of the day in English. Um, There were all sorts of options you could could pick, and I chose German. Um, Sehr gut. (laughs) Very. (laughs) And so I uh, spent half my day in kindergarten, first and second grade, learning Mm -hmm. math and science in German and everything else in English. Um, And then from there, there was kind of a pause. My family moved to a place that didn't really offer languages for uh, young people. Uh, So I picked up back again in high school with Latin. Uh, I loved it so much that I tried to teach myself Syriac which is an an ancient Semitic language. Um, But the textbook said I needed to know ancient Greek, so I said maybe I should learn that first, (laughs) and the addiction just spiraled from there. (laughs) Wow, Uh, that's quite prolific. I like it. And it's still going, right? Absolutely. I tack on new languages all the time as interest, time, necessity allow. Mm -hmm. Uh, So of late, uh, I finally added Dutch to the list. Cool. Uh, My family is Dutch. Mm -hmm. None of us speak it uh, but it's kind of been floating in the back of my mind nice. as a That's notion awesome. for a while. Yeah. And also uh, Hebrew. Nice. Cool. Fantastic. So, Alan, you are an active learning initiative postdoctoral associate. That's quite a mouthful there. Here at Cornell's Center for Teaching Innovation. Tell us more about this initiative. Yeah. So it's a really exciting project that was launched uh, exactly 10 years ago mm-hmm. last year, mm-hmm. 2022, by then Dean of Arts and Sciences, Peter Lepage, and a pair of donors, uh, an alumni, the Harrison family. Um, And what they wanted to do was transform undergraduate science education. Mm -hmm. It had traditionally, if you've attended such uh, an institution, it's a lot of lecture, a lot of sitting and listening. Um, And they were looking at the research around teaching and learning and realized, hey, uh, you know, if we start thinking about what this research is implying, that model is not helping our students. Mm. 
They're not learning as much as they could be, as well as they could be. Mm-hmm. So with the donation, the program funds uh, fellows like me, associates, and we are situated within particular departments across the university. Uh, And in those departments, we work with faculty in their courses um, through kind of an iterative process. So we start out Mm. by just sitting and observing, looking over materials, getting a sense of Mm -hmm. how it's going now. Uh, lots of talking over coffee. And, <laughs> Good. And then from there, we build a plan. Um, and depending on the class and the needs, the plan can be everything from team-based immersive scenarios to, uh, you know, hey, they just really need a worksheet here. And that's what's been going on at Cornell for the last 10, now, I guess, 11 years. Um, right. And it's just been really transformative. We're, mm-hmm. we're seeing big gains in undergraduate learning in general, um, it's closing uh, what some people like to call achievement gaps mm-hmm. pretty effectively. Yeah. Um, and, and so I'm just really excited to be a part of such a, a wonderfully transformative moment. Nice. That's great. Uh, as you just mentioned, you specifically work with classics faculty and graduate students on redesigning courses in translation around active learning principles. What does this look like in practice? Other than drinking coffee. Other than drinking coffee. (laughs) Totally. So in practice, uh, it can be everything from uh, what we might call restructuring an individual day. So one premise of active learning is that you often need to approach the material multiple times in Mm -hmm. different settings in different ways. Um, And that's not how a lot of faculty have been taught to think about their courses. Sure. Right? There's the lecture and then whatever's on the syllabus. But not a ton of interaction Mm -hmm. around those. And so one thing we do is say, hey, let's think about what they could do before class, what they could do after, and how we bring all that together in this magical moment where we're in the same Mm -hmm. room. Um, One of my favorite pieces of this that probably doesn't seem on the surface very active, but I'm going to evangelize at the moment, uh, is a a website platform called Mm peruseall.com. Uh, and for those of you who don't know what Perusal is, it's this lovely website. You can plug it into Canvas or whatever uh, learning management software you want to use, and then you upload media to it. And the website processes that media so that our students, as they're reading or listening or watching or looking, uh, are able to annotate right on the text collaboratively. Mm-hmm. Uh, And this is, to my mind, really great for many reasons, uh, but I'm going to focus on the language-based one, Mm -hmm. which is that it's really helpful to see where students are struggling in a text in a moment. Um, And at the same time, it's helpful for them to have the experience of helping each other. Uh, It builds the positive feelings and affect that you want in a good classroom of any sort, uh, builds connections. It produces better learning. Right. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. they're not waiting for me to give them an answer. Sure. sure. So, so that's one thing I, I like to do. Um, but the other thing I like to do is change the way students think and feel mm-hmm. about these subjects. And for me, that often means taking them into rare manuscript collections offices nice. or to an art museum yeah. or thinking up uh, what we might call a lab. Right. Uh, there was a, a prior individual in my role here with classics working on a course about writing, the history of writing systems. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they study cuneiform, and the lab for that is, you know, the students have some clay and a little stylus, and they work on writing cuneiform. That's fun. So it's really truly as big as your imagination Mm -hmm. and uh, resources can be. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. So when we think about language, world language courses, 
Um, inherently, of course, there's a lot of communication, right? I think they, they tend to be a little bit more active by nature already. But can you talk a little bit how active learning can be integrated more effectively into such world language courses more broadly? Yeah, absolutely. So my thinking there is, on the one hand, yes, there is a lot of interpersonal communication in language mm -hmm. classes. This is going on. Um, but one thing that active learning has allowed me to see, and I'm going to get a little technical here for a second, mm -hmm. um, in thinking about the actful world language standards and in thinking about the standards for classical language learning, uh, when you really drill down, the argument behind them to my mind is that when we teach language, we're actually teaching culture. Mm -hmm. Language is a cultural artifact, and trying to separate the two is really difficult. Um, And this is, you know, not the most novel notion, but when you start studying the history of, of language teaching, which is one of my interests, you discover that it's a notion that's kind of gone by the wayside for quite a bit mm -hmm. in favor of more rote memorization, mm -hmm. more sort yeah. of drilling in these sorts of things. And well, they can be effective. Don't get me wrong. Memorization helps. Mm -hmm. Adult learners can do that. Mm -hmm. uh, At the same time, that that's sometimes not the most uh, engaging and enthusiastic yep. approach to learning a language, especially if you're struggling. Mm -hmm. It can be very demotivating. So what I like to do is reframe language learning around cultural artifacts. So this past Tuesday, I took a Latin class to special collections, and we worked with different editions of uh, St. Augustine's Confessions in Latin. So they were looking at the Latin noting where readers over time had annotated it, what those annotations might tell us, hmm. um, comparing the texts in a sort of text-critical way, and all of these really naturally necessary skills in a language uh, that you might just do in a classroom, all of a sudden became real yeah. because it was happening with uh, an early printed book from 1489 in your hands. Sure. Um, I also like doing this with coins, with inscriptions, with artworks. I've taken students to an art museum, and we've just walked around and talked in the language about art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Uh, and all of these yeah. things really, I, I think, not only bring students in, but give them the sense that language isn't just a classroom thing. Uh, it's a way of, of seeing and engaging with the world and each other. Yeah. Nice. You published an interesting article in Teaching Classical Languages in 2018 titled Something Old, Something New, Marrying Early Modern Latin Pedagogy and Second Language Acquisition Theory. What does that marriage look like? You know, that's a really complicated question. <laughs> that's what we like to ask here. <laughs> it, 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 and I really appreciate it because it's such an important question. Uh, so to answer it, I actually want to talk just a little bit about a conversation that's been going on in the last uh, decade or so in, in Latin teaching land, and to some extent Greek teaching land too. Mm -hmm. um, and the conversation is usually framed like this. We, we are in an existential battle between two sides. Yeah. On one side is a grammar translation approach. Mm -hmm. And on the other side is a communicative, spoken, uh, sometimes it gets called active Latin approach. Mm -hmm. uh, and that these two are at loggerheads. And one thing that people on both sides of that conversation have liked to say in the past uh, is that their version was traditional. Huh. That, that grammar <laughs> translation is yeah. the traditional method. Huh. Or in the case of this, this kind of new on the scene, spoken, engaging approach, uh, that their method is actually the real one. You know, grammar translation emerged in 19th century Germany, England, France, the yeah. U.S. But if you go oh, back to the Renaissance, 
And even, uh, you know, the 17th century, if you wanted to go to college in early America, you had to speak Latin. Sure. And because of my interest in the history of teaching languages and also the theory of it, Mm -hmm. what I wanted to do in that article was put together the latest research at the time in second language acquisition and historical texts from this early modern period. Uh, So we started with Erasmus. We ended with a text in the 17th century. And what I wanted to point out to them, and by them I mean both sides, is that when we really look at the historical evidence, we see both grammar translation style approaches and communicative approaches occurring all the way back. Mm. And for me, this is a huge gift because uh, I was formerly a high school teacher. And what that, that has taught me is that when you want to be effective with students, the key is begging, borrowing, stealing, trading <laughs> to get whatever's going to work yeah. for the students in front of you, yeah. which is always changing. Um, and so rather than be doctrinaire about a, a particular philosophical, methodological approach to language teaching, I'm syncretistic. I say, study all of them, find what works with your mm-hmm. students, mm-hmm. take it and put it together. Mm-hmm. And that's the marriage. Sometimes it means leaning into these school dialogues written in the Renaissance that are approachable to students because they're funny, but also in Latin. Mm-hmm. Um, Sometimes it means recognizing that what the student really needs is a a little bit of rote memorization. Sure. And implementing that, too. And I think if we stop trying to to divide ourselves Mm -hmm. into these theoretical camps and instead start talking about what's working in our classrooms, we really all benefit because we can take the best of all of these approaches and put them together into something great that works for us and our students. So you just mentioned um, your experiences from when you taught in public schools and and how that really is informing still what you're doing now. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And I I have to start by confessing uh, that when I first entered public school teaching, I dreaded it. Mm. Um, Mm. I was not the uh, kindest student to my teachers at times in high school. Uh, I think that goes for probably most everybody. It does. Um, <laughs> but but at that point, thinking back on it, I said, you know, man, if I had like two or three of me in a classroom, I'm not sure I could deal with it. Mm. <laughs> and, and so I was I was really apprehensive and nervous. Yeah. Um, but when I got into the high school classroom, what I found there everywhere I taught high school was students who were curious, mm-hmm. engaged, who wanted to learn yeah. and be interested, and in many ways who are open to things that students later down the line uh, in some ways aren't because they hadn't been disciplined into thinking a certain way, Mm. uh, because they didn't feel the pressure of, say, a future career looming. Sure. Um, And this was so energizing and generative for me in my thinking, in part because what it showed me is that uh, rather than some people how some people like to think about it uh, as students and teachers being kind of adversarial, we really can work together in ways that are exciting and fun for both sides. Um, But it also taught me through that just how fun it can be to watch a new concept, idea, vocabulary word click in -hmm. their heads, to watch the smiles mm-hmm. go off, yeah. the jaws drop. Mm. The um, <laughs> I used to make a joke when I'm talking in class uh, and the students had their minds blown, you know, this I- English idiom. Uh, I would usually have a piece of chalk in my hand. So 
when I saw this happening, I'd break it in the, in half and throw it up over my head <laughs> with a little cloud of dust. And in Latin, I, I would say, you know, mind blown. <laughs> and that's awesome. You know, it's it's fun, but but really having those interactions with students on a one on one level, on a group level, um, is just so joyful. Yeah. It, and for that reason, addictive for me, and mm-hmm. I I can't stop uh, hunting for it. Yeah. Well, and moments like that stand out to students, too, right? Mm. I, I distinctly remember a math teacher of mine doing random things with chalk that were always fun and entertaining. Yeah, my, my other favorite is uh, the classroom I first taught in. The, the teacher prior to me let students paint Latin uh, texts all over the walls. Hmm. Um, so short snippets of the Aeneid or other mm-hmm. such things. And these are kind of institutional cinder block painted walls. Hmm. And I realized very quickly looking at the room that what I could actually do is use the chalk to write on the wall. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> and so I would I would save that, especially with students who'd never had me, to a little bit into term when things are getting kind of slow and mm-hmm. dull mm-hmm. and they seem to be fading in the middle of a lecture. And then I'll go, okay, let's go look at this example and start circling things on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> and this would break their their minds. Yeah. Uh-huh. They'd I just bet. be like, what, what is are you doing? Right. Yeah. What is happening here? <laughs> um but As a result, when I asked them, you know, how did you remember this thing on a test? What was the thing that stuck? They'd say something like, you know, I really didn't get it, but then you were writing on the wall and it kind of clicked and (laughs) I can't forget it. Mm. Um, Nice. And so it's just always been a really, a really fun way to, uh, to experience language itself, I'd Mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. I I had uh, one of my favorite teachers in high school used to, he would get on a soapbox and talk about trauma imprints memory. And then when there was some detail that he really wanted us to remember, he would like, it was a music class, he would stick his head into the piano and shout the concept into the piano. And that's, and that was how we would remember it, though I am hard pressed at this point to remember any specific examples of the information (laughs) that he provided. I just have this very clear memory more than 15 years ago of Mr. Cooper sticking his head into the nice. piano. I and like that's, it. So that's my my related anecdote. What I'm taking away from this is that I need a, a classroom with a piano. There, I, <laughs> I recommend it to anyone. <laughs> uh, all right. Alan, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Yeah, so the, the first place I would send them is to my faculty page here at Cornell. Uh, you can find it on the Classics Department page under Faculty. And I'd send them there because it's a great way to get an overview of all of the different kinds of hats I like to mm-hmm. wear. Um, I really enjoy teaching, but I'm also a researcher. And I'm also kind of an administrator running a, a program that involves pedagogy training and course transformation and all of that. It, is a lot of data tracking and, and monitoring and management. Um, and so they'll get a good sense of me there. And then from there, the the options are really open. I'm not a big uh, academic Twitter person. I don't have a blog, but I always love emails from interested people, collaborators, um, ways to reach out. And there's also, you know, links to my academia.edu page and uh, assorted other things that they could follow up on. Perfect. And we'll make sure to link to the page in the show notes. So before we sign off, we would like to ask you to share a word in a language that you speak, that you love, that you are learning, that you want to learn, that makes you giggle. This is such a wonderful question. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to steal it from you all. Yeah, wow. please. Because I think it's a, a great way to engage students and open them up. Um, and I have so many of these that I'm, I'm only going to pick <laughs> one. Uh, and it's 
it's in Dutch uh, that I'm learning, and it's their word for sandwich. Uh, and any Dutch speakers, I apologize if I butcher this. I'm still learning, uh, despite my last name. The word is boterham, and I like it, not only because it sort of rolls off the tongue in a way that feels uh, new and strange and novel to me, but also because all I can imagine when I hear it is a very large submarine roll that's yeah. like a boat mm-hmm. stuffed with ham. Um, and, you know, I, I don't eat meat, but this sticks in my head as a, a very uh, effective way of remembering how to ask for a sandwich if I'm in Amsterdam. There we go. I like, <laughs> like it. that very much. Yes. Well, this has been a treat. Thanks so much for speaking of language with us, Alan. Thanks for having me. This has been a blast. Join us next week to hear about ChatGPT, AI, and second language writing when we speak with Claire Francis and Giovanni Zimotti from the University of Iowa. Until then. Auf Wiederhören. The Language Resource Center is located on the ground floor of Stimson Hall on Cornell's main campus in Ithaca, New York. Check us out on the web at lrc.cornell.edu or follow Cornell LRC on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Speaking of Language is produced by Angelica Kramer and Sam Lupowitz. Recorded by Sam Lupowitz. Original music by Sam Lupowitz, Dan Gable, and Joe Gibson. Thanks also to the College of Arts and Sciences at Cornell University. As a reminder, the ideas and opinions expressed on this podcast do not reflect those of the College of Arts and Sciences or any other official entity of Cornell University. We thank our listeners, and do stay tuned for our next episode. Join us next week to hear about chat, GPT, AI, and second language writing when we speak with Claire Francis and Giovanni Zimotti from the University of Iowa. Until then. I almost ran out of breath there. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. That's the end of the podcast. It's going to catch everyone off. (laughs) 